Welcome everyone to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today we have a real treat for you. We are going to talk about how lawyers can attract clients and how lawyers can make a great living and live a great life. If you spent any time with me, you know that this has been something that's near and dear to my heart, but I have someone who's going to help you and help me become wildly successful. That's right. If you want to have a wildly successful law firm, you want to take good notes. You want to be with us for the entire show today as we talk to Nermeen Jassani. Nermeen, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Awesome, Dave. It's so wonderful to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about this. All right. So it's my it's my pleasure to have you with us today. Talk about first, the first thing I want to know before you give us your whole background and how you got into this is, so your website, when I, when I was, when I was doing the research before the show, your website is, we are wildly successful. Is that, is that right? That is exactly what it is. We are wildly successful. I love that that because it's a brand promise and a website. What gave you the inspiration to to name the website We Are Wildly Successful? Because I think it's brilliant. I think it's genius. Well, thank you so much for that. So number one, uh, I believe in gimmicky. I think gimmicky works. So for our work week, I will teach you to be rich. Those are those are the people I listen to, whose advice I follow. They've got these super gimmicky names, and I just I loved it. I used to be something else, and now I'm like wildly successful because it just it fits right. And the definition of successful is so different for everyone, right? And it I think encapsulates everyone without being seven figures or you know something more specific. It's just successful. However you want to define it, that's what we're going to get you to. All right. So, Nermeen, for you, what? how will you know when you are wildly successful? To be completely honest, I know I'm already there. I do what I love. I get paid to do it. I make a difference for people. I work when I want to work. I don't work when I don't want to work. And it's it, for me, that is exactly what successful means. I came up from a very corporate sort of background when it comes to, you know, being a law firm and being a lawyer itself. And so right now, the fact that, you know, if I didn't want to work on Monday, I could cancel all my meetings and not get in trouble is amazing. So for me, it's like, all right, I've made it like (laughs) this is this is the life. So you're implied in what you just said is that each of us defines success for ourselves. And I think it's really hard for someone who's focused and driven and went to law school and then takes a job at big law and then does everything you're supposed to do. It's really hard for that person to say, so, you know, coaching my kid's soccer team means I'm successful. I thought being successful meant making partner by the time I was 35 and, you know, working a hundred hours a week and billing 2,300 hours a year. I thought that's what success was. You know, I mean, how can you tell me that just being a good dad is enough for me to be successful? Do you ever hear that? Do people ever say that to you? I do. And I actually see it from a lot of women many times when it's like, oh, I have a work conference I'm presenting at, or do I go to my daughter's ballet recital? And I'm always like, well, let's think about it this way. The 
work that you do is probably allowing you to pay for ballet for there to even be a ballet recital, number one. Number two, you as a parent get to choose what are the things that you're gonna show up for and what are you not gonna show up for. To be completely honest, you know, do you wanna go to every single play, every single recital? Is that a, a, an emblem of what a great parent you are? No, I think an emblem of what a great parent you are is do you show up for your kids when they need you, right? Like, and every ballet recital, every piano recital may not be a need. Right. And and maybe for you, you know, soccer is the need and that's how you show up for them. Right. And I think it's amazing and wonderful, but we have to define it for ourselves. We can't just say it's this box definition and then fit it to everyone else. It's a custom made suit. Right. Your size suit is not going to fit me. And that's just how it's going to be. So we just have to have a little bit of flexibility in there. And I think as long as you're open to what it looks like for you anything is possible from there. So coach me up, Nermeen. I, uh, I, have the, I have the weight of the judgment of my peers now, and it's on my shoulders and I feel it. And, you know, the folks I went to law school with are advancing and here I am and I'm cutting out at four o'clock on Wednesday. And, you know, I got a camping trip two weeks from now with the Girl Scouts. So I, uh, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to be in the office four, five days a week in two weeks. And my, you know, my friends, the people that I graduated from law school with are advancing and they're looking at me and they're going, is this guy a real lawyer? I mean, what is he, it's like, he's never working. What's going, what's going on? So coach me up. How do I, how do I reconcile those two things in my head? Like this feels good for me. And this is my definition of success, but I got this judgment of all these people, my partners, uh, the people who, you know, I went to law school with, how do I reconcile those two things in my mind? So, there's going to be a kind of funny thing that you can do here and it's a little bit like dual judgment so it's like they're judging you for not you know staying at work until you know 7 p.m every single night and missing dinner and missing tucking in your kids right but the other side of that is maybe they're on their third marriage right like you have no idea what's going on on that side of the street so you know to make this more of a quote-unquote positive conversation you know, just focus on what you're doing and not so much what everyone else is saying, because even if you stayed until seven o'clock at night, you better bet there's going to be someone down the hall who's like, oh, clocking out at seven. Why not eight o'clock? Oh, like, half day. Huh? Yeah, uh -huh. that's stupid. Exactly. I hate that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's like no matter what you do, you will never be able to make 100 percent of people happy. So just make yourself 100 percent happy. And that is really the best thing that you can do is try to minimize all the noise from the outside and also unfollow those people on social media. You know, don't go to lunch with them. Don't go get, get drinks with them. Like limit your interactions with them because it's just, it's not going to make you a better person. It's not going to allow you to show up as the lawyer and the dad or the lawyer and the parent that you want to be. If you're just listening to all their shit, you know, just not going to work. All right. So I, I love the way you think. How did you get to this place? What what brought us to we are wildly successful from, you know, from Emory University, from, you know, law school, from, you know, what you were doing? How did you get here both mentally and, you know, give us the, the chronology? What happened to you that made you so enlightened? 
Yeah, I will tell you it's not a straight line. And if anyone ever tells you that to get from point A to B is a straight line is is completely wrong. I mean, it looked like a tornado some days, right? Like it's just a total squiggle from where I started to where I am now. But what I will tell you is, you know, when I went to law school, I for sure wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I sat for the LSAT. I was totally ready for it. And even before I got to law school, I interned for two years at a personal injury office and at a family law office. So I was like, this is it. I'm doing this. I'm going to be a lawyer. And then I actually started like the day-to-day practice of law. And that was not fun. It didn't feel challenging enough for me. And I'll be even more honest, the idea of sitting in an office all day just felt like I was dying. Like, just did not fit for me. And I was living in Manhattan at the time. So, you know, if you're familiar with commuting in Manhattan, you're waking up at, you know, 6.30, you know, showering, getting ready for work, you're commuting for 30 minutes at minimum, you know, you're getting into the office, you're changing into, you know, your work shoes because no one actually wears five inch heels, you know, commuting around, that's only on TV, it's not reality. And, you know, you work all day, you eat, you don't even have lunch, you know, you sit at your desk for lunch, and then at six or seven o'clock, you go to the gym, and then you go home, and then rinse and repeat. That was not the life I wanted to live. And the honest truth is that when I was in law school, no one actually broke down for me that this is the day-to-day of what my life was going to look like. I was under the impression that I'm going to be in this beautiful office, and I'm going to be wearing you know, beautiful outfits, and we're all going to just be doing this really important legal work. And that was the impression. And then the reality of it was just so not that. And it was a little bit crushing for me because I so wanted to be a lawyer. And then I did like seven different iterations of trying to stay in law. So I was like, let me start my own firm. And so I started my own firm thinking maybe what I needed was independence. And I think over time, I just realized that I'm not in love with practicing law. And there are a lot of people who are probably better lawyers than I am. And I would rather let them do the lawyering and let me do the business side of stuff. And I was always more business savvy. Like even in law school, I got a degree in financial transactions. Like I was always all about the business side of stuff. And, you know, I left my law firm and then I started my firm and then I left that and I had an idea for a tech startup. I did that for about a year and a half in LA. So I was in Manhattan, moved out to LA and did the Silicon Beach thing, you know, trying to fundraise money and got laughed out of pretty much every single room. But let me tell you, I learned so much from all of those rejections. It's pretty incredible. Even now when clients say no to me or or ignore me for a couple of days, I'm like, that means nothing. Like I've been rejected by a room full of VCs who have laughed at all of my ideas. So this means nothing to me. Like I've got really, really tough skin now when it comes to things like that. So, um, you know, I did the tech startup thing and it was sort of a chicken and egg where it was like, Hey, I need a hundred thousand dollars so I can get a hundred thousand users. And they were like, well, we need 100,000 users before we give you $100,000. And I was like, great. So I kept hearing this same thing from all VCs. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm, this is not for me, and I'm going to walk away from this. So I walked away from it, came back to Atlanta, which is where my parents are, went to you know undergrad down here. And this was just supposed to be a pit stop. I was not supposed to be here forever, but I ended up falling back in love with the city. And you know, when I was here, my dad was like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, I have no idea. He's like, you want to start a mattress factory? I was like, sure. So I started a mattress factory. 
with my father uh, in 2016, and it's still here. It's called Mattress Atlanta, where we manufacture mattresses here in Atlanta and then ship them to local family-owned businesses in the area. Wow, that's Crazy. great. So you, so are you still involved with that business or are you completely out of that business? I'm completely out of it, but I'm still involved in that it's a family business and you never really get out of a family business. The dinner conversation, you know, my brother's saying, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Like, I'm still involved. But, you know, the day-to-day stuff, that's not mine. And when I see my brother going through it, I'm like, I got out, you didn't. <laughs> So I want to go back to I want to go back to the um, the rejection by VCs because there's there's something about that that I think most people will miss and I want to I want to really explore that for a few minutes with you rejection by a, by people in the venture capital community is such a good primer it's such a good uh, preparation for any type of business development work. And here's the reason why, because you could give uh, uh, three pitches in a week and two people could laugh you out of the room, but the third could think it's the best idea they ever heard and you wouldn't have changed anything, right? So go, doing that, right, is, is good and it's instructional for several reasons. Number one, if you changed after every time you got rejected, you'd have a nervous breakdown because you wouldn't know who you were. Your identity would be would be thrust upon you by other people, and that's a terrible recipe, right? The second thing is the rejection isn't about you and your idea. The rejection is about them, right? They can laugh all they want because what you're doing didn't fit their business model, but that's all it was. What you're doing didn't fit their business model, And the third thing is every no that you get, this is a Mark Cuban expression, every no that you get along the way gets you closer to a yes because you got to try your pitch out, you got better, you got smoother every time. And each time somebody rejects you, you actually get closer to a yes. So, you know, putting yourself through that you didn't go into it, I'm sure, and I'll and I'll let you uh, react to this. You didn't go into it, I'm sure, saying, "Hey, listen, I can't wait to run through the meat grinder and get my ass handed to me sixty consecutive times before I'm successful because I'm really going to learn a lot." Nobody does that, right? But I think if you don't stop for a minute and say, "This is the greatest learning experience of my career," you're really missing out. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, Dave, I was so doe-eyed about the whole experience. I was like, oh, people are just going to want to give me money. This is such a good idea. Who's not going to want to pursue this? And then I will tell you that for the rejections that I got, they were so interesting because at the time I wasn't listening to what they were saying, but I will tell you, I apply that advice every day now. So they came to me and they were like, Nermeen, what is your business model? How are you going to make money from this thing? And I didn't have an answer. I, I was like, no, but you'll just give me money, right? And then, and then you'll make money from the users, right? Like that's how you'll make your, that's how Facebook was doing it. They didn't have ads back then. And so it was just, now when I talk to so many of my clients, I'm like, okay, so how are you gonna make money? Now I get to be the person who's giving them that same advice, which is, yeah, this is a really good idea, but how are you gonna make money selling donuts at a 20% markup? Like, do you know how many donuts you're gonna have to sell before you can get 
you know, your debt paid off or, or my loan back to me. You know, it's like very simple advice that I got from them. And, you know, it really has changed how I consult my clients now because that's the foundational question when it comes to a business. And maybe you see this too a lot, Dave, but with clients, oftentimes you look at their numbers and you're like, are you running a non-for-profit? Like, what is this? Like, what are your numbers? This makes no sense. And so, you know, when you have that perspective of what's your business model, like how much are you trying to make here? Why are your margins so little? Like, why are you charging so little? These were all the questions that were being asked for me. And they were like, are you going to make this into a subscription? Are you going to, you know, turn on advertising? Are you going to have business partners? Like, what is your model here? How are we supposed to get our money back? And now that's what I ask my clients. How are you going to get your money back? How are you going to make money from this idea? How are you going to support yourself, right? Because when you're in your 20s and you're young, you're like, I don't need that much money to live. But then as you get older and you have responsibilities and you have a mortgage and you have a family that you want to take care of, then those questions become extremely relevant. And those are no longer back burner questions. Those are the questions you need to have answered before you start a business. Okay, so a client comes to you and they are they they start to tell you their story and they are they're having a discovery session with you they're having an initial consultation with you and they think it's for one reason but it's really something else and i want to explore that but first i want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You know Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. If you if you listen to our show at all, you know they are absolutely fantastic. And since 1983, they've been providing excellent, they've been providing expert client service to a nationwide base of fantastic professionals and businesses from their offices in Metro Detroit, as well as in Chicago, Illinois. Now they have expertise in a whole host of things. My favorite things they do are tax planning and consultation, and they work with family offices and they can help family offices not only save a lot of money, but be in compliance in regulated industries, as well as making sure that things run very smoothly. Their business valuation and litigation support is way above and beyond what you would normally expect. And they do forensic accounting like nobody else. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm, but they really have a different perspective because they've seen a lot and they've been inside a lot of businesses. If you would like to connect with Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, you can do one of two things. Either you can reach out to me and I will make an introduction to the perfect person for you at CCA, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, or you can call this number. 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide, and that is the ultimate business plan if you need to develop a business development plan, a marketing plan for your firm. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact information there. You can download for free a business development plan that you can use tomorrow. You can customize it for your firm. All you have to do is answer the questions in the guide. Just go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, and you can download the guide there. All right, Nermeen. So a client comes to you, a lawyer, male, female, doesn't matter. And they start to ask you questions about one thing, but it's really something else they should be working on. 
Tell us about that. Fill us in. Yeah, so this happens 100% of the time, but I will tell you most of the time what it is is they're at a crossroads in their in their firm and they're trying to decide, okay, do I hire so-and-so person? What's the direction that my firm needs to go in? And it's usually because there's a lot of noise when you're a business owner. And the noise is usually coming from like 17 different places and like other attorneys. So, oh, you know, you've got to hire someone. Your time is worth more than, you know, a, a VA's time or, you know, a paralegal's time. You got to hire, you got to hire. And they just get so confused. And my conversation with them is always, can you afford at least three months of this person's salary right now in this moment? If you can't, forget about it, let it go. Because if you hit a bump in the road, I don't want you to have a conversation of, do I pay myself? or do I pay my paralegal? That is a scary place to be. And I've seen so many firms grow way too fast and then they hire all these people because they think that the work is gonna come in and then the work doesn't come in. And then you know what happens? They start charging less. And then that just becomes their new business model. We're the cheap attorneys that you're gonna, we're gonna charge you, you know, 250 bucks an hour and, or 300 bucks an hour when really the going rate needs to be 400 or 500. And then it suppresses everyone else around them where they feel like they have to have the same right. So it's like when you look at it on, a, on an overall picture, like the entire market is now suffering, right? And it's just not even a fair place to play for, for other people because they went and hired too many people instead of letting them go. So yeah, again, you, you've raised so many issues in there. I think the first issue I'd like to, I'd like to really tease out with you is this notion of successful businesses have employees, right? So like for me, I, um, I came from a, a background where I had 300 people that worked for me. And when I went into my own business, I thought I, I never want to have a, one person working for me. I don't want for a whole host of reasons. Right. And then I went to like a, an EO meeting, an entrepreneur's organization meeting. And they, and they said to me, all right, you have to give us your, you know, give us your numbers for your business. And I told them what my revenue was at the time. And they, they were like, wow. And how many employees do you have? And I said, none, I don't want any employees. And they were like, wow, you're, you're, you can't, you can't join. You have, you have to, you have to have at least, I forget what it is like 10. You have to have at least 10 employees. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I said, I make the money I make and I make probably more money than somebody who would have, you know, a 15 or a 20 employee business and I take that money home, I, you know, my, my profit is like 80%. Why would I want to screw that up? And people don't get it. So Nermeen, tell us, how do you go to these people and say, like, do you grab them and shake them and just be like, what are you doing? You're screwing it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, Dave, I love this conversation so much because I think that law firms especially are so used to the appearance of how many people work for them that defines how successful they are as a practice. And I will tell you that even my small and solo law firm owners will try to model the big law firm owner and the big law model. And my response to them is, you cannot afford multiple bodies because when you look at big law, there's someone who delivers the mail, there's someone who orders lunch, there's someone who literally just sits 
on Zoom calls helping attorneys when there are issues with the Zoom call. Like you cannot afford that support as a solopreneur or even as a small firm. So yeah, I mean, my conversation with them is inside of numbers. So I give them the numbers. I'm like, listen, you make $400,000 a year, for example. If you wanted to have one attorney and one paralegal, that's gonna bring you down to $200,000. Like that's what you're gonna take home. So if you're only gonna make $200,000, go be an associate at someone else's firm, take on less of a headache because having your own firm is just so much work to do. My, what I usually say is, listen, be really clear about who you are, what, how much money you need to make. Like what is your bottom line that you need to make, your bare ass minimum, if you will. Add 20% to that and then that's where we need to be playing, right? Because I want all my clients to have 60 to 70% profitability. And that is really hard to do when you have 15 people on your payroll. You know, your number at the top needs to be significantly higher. And that just means that you have to be spending a lot of money on marketing if you wanna be, you know, a seven figure, eight figure firm and your take home is 500,000, right? I would much rather you be a $600,000 revenue firm and you take home 500 because you don't have that much overhead. So Dave, I'm totally with you on this conversation. I don't know why, I, I get why like there's a conversation around, oh, you gotta have employees to really be successful. I think that a lot of that model is shifting a little bit with the pandemic where people are starting to see that they don't need a big firm, that they can actually be profitable on their own. The second part of that conversation, Dave, is like people problems. Who wants people problems? I am not someone who wants to deal with people problems. I would rather help my clients solve their problems than be spending two hours every day trying to train someone or then being upset that they didn't do the quality of work that I'm used to. This is all about time efficiency, not even time management, it's about time efficiency. And if you're truly trying to make the most of your 24 hours in a day where you only are gonna work six of those hours, then I think one of the things you really have to consider is do you want to deal with people problems or not and for me that was a clear no i didn't want to deal with people problems i you know i came to this realization myself later after i had started my business like that that conversation with those people at eo was like a kick in the teeth to me and i'm like i don't i don't want 10 employees i don't understand so you know fast forward then like a year i'm in uh, one of my friend's offices, who's also a client, and he had just hired his 11th lawyer. And it was him and, a, and an, an equity part, another equity partner, the two of them. And we were looking at their financials from the previous year. And I looked at his salary and I looked at the distributions that he took. And I said, you've got 11 lawyers, you've got six paralegals, you've got a receptionist who sits at the front desk and you have, they had like a law clerk, but the guy, the I'm not a law clerk, I'm sorry, a file clerk. And the guy was like the jack of all trades, like, you know, change the light bulbs in the office, cut the grass outside. No, he really <laughs> did everything. Like he was the guy who, you know, if they were having a meeting, he would set up the meeting room, make sure there was water. And yep. like if, if he was out, he was the key to the whole firm. He was the person they yep. really needed, right? So anyway, he's got all these employees and I'm looking at the, his salary plus his distributions and there, you know, there are perks. They were, you know, running their cars through the firm and, you know, insurance and all that sure. stuff. So, yeah. you know, there, there, there are benefits of having your own business. I looked at him and I said, I got to be honest with you. And I was kind of 
I felt I was, I was kind of being a little vulnerable. I said, I'm going to make just a little bit more than you're making this year. And, you know, I've got 45 clients. I got no employees. I got like six contracts. At the time, I had six contractors that were doing various things who I could, you know, replace at any time. Some of them I paid per project. Some of them I want a retainer. I'm like, I don't understand why you want to do this. And he sat back in his chair and he's, you know, we are, we have a lot in common where we're the exact same age where, you know, our family types are the same. And he was like, he's like, I'm devastated. He's like, I'm, I'm absolutely crushed. <laughs> he's like, cause I feel like I'm working a lot harder than you. And I said, well, you shouldn't be devastated. You shouldn't be crushed. You should open your mind to the fact that there are other business models. And I said, let me ask you this question. Why did you choose to build your firm this way? And he said, well, He's like, I was a partner at Hutton and Williams. I was a partner at Holland and Knight. And this is the way the law firms looked. <laughs> yep. 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 And isn't it so funny when you have to tell them like, hey, by the way, I make more than you do. And technically on paper, like you should be making more than I am. Right. Well, like, it I mean, seems it seems like it, oh, right? you know, and it's. So the, you know, the, what follows there, Nermeen, of course, and it didn't follow there in this case, but in, in other, in other uh, conversations like this that I've had, what follows is then the excuses. And I heard it, I heard it two days ago on a, so you and I are both part of Provisors. I heard it two days ago in a, in a breakout, in a Provisors session, a lawyer said, well, you know, there are two types of people in this provisors organization. There are lawyers and then there are, you know, salespeople and the lawyers have to actually go do some work. They can't just sell all day. Right. Meaning like I'm and, I, and everybody in this breakout was a lawyer except for me. So like I like I'm out there banging on doors all day long and I'm not actually doing any work. Right. And like that isn't hard work to begin with. So I think to, what what. You have to, and, and you know, I want, I want your opinion on this, but what you have to get straight is, hey, look, the first thing we have to do is we have to figure out how we're going to develop relationships with people and provide value. And then once we figure that out, if there is a business case to be made for employees, so be it, right? If I owned a tire shop, I'm not going to change the tires myself. I need employees, right? If I own a convenience store, I'm not going to work 24-7 at the counter of the convenience. I may work one shift, but I'm not going to work 24-7 at the counter of the convenience store. I need employees. In professional services, you might need employees and you might not, but you at least have a choice to decide which business model you want. So, Nermeen, how do we help our clients choose the right business model? What do we do for them to, to get them to, to you know, go down the right path? Yeah, I will tell you that for my clients, I have them do the business model quiz. It's a quiz that I created for them where they answer eight questions about who they are and that helps me put them into a business model. So for law firms, there's essentially three models. You're either going to be a rainmaker, and that's really personality dependent, which is the typical law firm model that we see and hear about now. But there's two others. There's the doer model, which is if you are someone who's highly specialized. So you're an ERISA attorney. You are a patent attorney who has an engineering background, like you actually understand how the little widget works that you're trying to get patented, right? Like for those 
types of attorneys, you're going to be more in a doer model. And then the third is a hybrid. I think most attorneys probably fall into a hybrid model. And that's the model that you know, I sort of encourage people to go towards. And it's pretty simple. You're not going to spend 100% of your time marketing. You're not going to spend 100% of your time doing the work. You're going to find the balance that's right for you. It could be 60-40. It could be 30-70. Doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to do all of the marketing. Doesn't mean you're going to do all the work. But the most important thing, I think, is understanding that attorneys oftentimes take on clients that they should not take on because they're afraid of saying no to the work because then they are afraid that they're not gonna be able to pay that very expensive overhead, right? So when you sit down and you actually figure out what your practice area is gonna be and the kind of clients that you're gonna work with, you also have to then get comfortable saying, no, you were not the right fit for this firm. Let me put you in touch with someone else. If you have a client who's coming in and saying, oh, you charge $500 an hour for your, you know, for your expertise, and they're like, well, can you do it at 300? Can you do it at 350? I mean, if they're having that conversation with you in the first meeting, there, there's no way that you're gonna be able to get them up to 500, number one. Number two, they are already in your face just disrespecting you and don't really understand the value that you are bringing. And then number three, I think that you know they're very quickly gonna become that vampire client where you're gonna send them your invoice and you're gonna say, here's the work that was completed they're gonna come back and argue with you and about every single line item that you have on that invoice. And now you're spending your time, those 24 hours that you have, fighting with a client that you should have never brought on. You're now asking your associates to reduce the number of hours that they worked. And it just becomes this whole like vomit of problems because you didn't at the first step say, you know what, you're not gonna be a good client for us. And I'm so sorry, but here's another firm that might be a better fit for you. Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100% correct. And I'll tell you, the, what, you, what you described about the kind of the avatars or the roles that uh, attorneys fall into, one of the things that I like to do with big firm lawyers on the occasion that I'm working with a big firm lawyer is when we first start out, I try to do something a little unexpected. And what that is, is I say to them, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to pick a practice area other than the practice area in which you work. And I want us to focus our business development efforts on that practice area. And, you know, once I pick the attorney up off the floor, because invariably they pass out, right? All the blood drains from their head and they're like, oh my yeah. God, I don't know. I don't know how to do trust and estates work, Dave. I don't, I don't know anything about litigation, Dave. Well, you're a transactional lawyer. You write contracts that are litigated. So you do know something about litigation, right? So once we, once we resuscitate them, I explain to them, it is better for you to have some knowledge, but no competency in an area that you're trying to develop business because you won't get sucked into that. You can develop a million dollars worth of business in that practice area and it will not take one more hour of your time. And then it's like a light switch and they're like, hmm, that's really interesting. And if I said, hey, listen, let's do, let's do the math based on, and it, and it varies based on firm. Let's do the math and let's look at your compensation plan and let's look at what you would make if you originated $500,000 for a practice area that wasn't yours. And then let's look at 
what it would take in time if you originated $500,000 for yourself. And they say right away, oh, I can tell you, if I originate $500,000 for myself, I'll have to, that's, you know, it's going to be like 1,800 billable hours and I'm never going to be able to do anything else. And I'm like, there you go. So, you know, that exercise there, and by the way, that works sort of, it sort of works with solos if the solo says, hey, listen, you know, I'm doing, this is for a, a very specific person. I, if I'm doing well and I can't get out of my own way, and I don't, you know, I don't have control of my life anymore, but I'm making the money I want to make. All right, here's what I recommend you do. Bring in somebody and start originating business for them. And there are a whole host of ways to do it. That doesn't have to cost you a ton of money. Once you originate for them, if you're making money from their work, then you can transition your business development efforts to really focus on them. So, you know, the key is, and Nermeen, I'm interested in hearing how you do this. How do you convince someone who went to school, just like you did, to learn something very specific? How do you convince them that that's not the business anymore? The business has become this other thing if you want to enjoy the freedom that really could come with it. Yeah, I think the the way that I describe it to my clients, and I think what you're talking about as well, Dave, is, you know, we've all called Uber, right? Dave, you use Uber, mm -hmm. right? You You go to the app. You call them, they show up, and then you take a ride, and then they drop you, and that's it. Attorneys have that uber-on-demand mindset, and I think that it's one of the most dangerous things that you can have. They are only thinking about serving that client for that one contract, for that one estate plan, for that one thing. But what they're not thinking about is that that one client, whether it be a business owner, whether it be a entire business entity, or it is just an individual, right? It doesn't matter who that client actually is, but they have many, many, many needs. They're not just coming for an estate plan. They're not just coming because they've gotten divorced. If, if you're truly thinking like an attorney that wants to serve their clients, let's take an example. Someone comes to you for a divorce. Okay, they're not just coming to you for the divorce. They're now also coming to you for their estate planning needs because that needs to be updated. Additionally, they're gonna to have to sell their house. That's a real estate transaction that comes from that. Then they're also going to need, you know, let's say any other kind of work. Maybe they've got business assets that need to be sold. Like there's so much work that can come from that one contact that all you have to do is just ask the right questions. Stop thinking that they're going to come to you when they need something. It needs to be more that you're asking them questions that aren't just about that divorce. It's also about everything else that's going on. And what I notice is most attorneys don't have that conversation because they haven't been trained to have exploratory conversations. In law school, you're just taught, here's the case, these are the elements of this case. You know, is, it, is there a contract or not? You know, offer acceptance consideration, right? They're just trying to check off boxes. So the one thing I say is when you're doing a client intake, actually have an effective client intake form, right? Where you are asking questions of the client that will also maybe lead to work for other people in your practice. That I think is just such a simple tool and a simple solution. Most attorneys I know though, oh, I just, I use my, my you know, yellow notepad and my pen to do a client intake and you're missing out on so much work 
that you could be doing. And now you're out searching for new clients constantly. So you're on this stupid freaking hamster wheel instead of just asking the clients you already have these questions and serving them as a holistic solution, as a one-stop shop instead of, you know, just come do this one thing with me this one time and I can only, you know, quote unquote, bill you or charge you for these 20 to 30 hours when in fact there's probably hundreds of hours of work that you could generate from that one client. One of the, one of the things that we do with, uh, with attorneys and with, well, with all of our clients and professional services is we force them to have an onboarding process that asks every possible question. So, and the onboarding process, even if they're, even if they're in a B2B practice, the onboarding process goes deep into what will make the client personally successful. And when the, and I have the attorneys or I have the, you know, the client develop the list of questions themselves, I prompt them, but if they're coming up with the questions themselves, it's more likely to stick. It's more likely for them to have the recall that they need when they have to ask the questions. And in the onboarding process, that's a time when you can ask any question at all and nobody's gonna say, well, why are you asking me that? Because if they ever did say that, you would say, I need a holistic picture in order to represent you. So, you know, you should be asking who their who their CPA is. You should be asking, you know, who sold them their life insurance. You should be asking if they have key person insurance for their firm. You should be asking if they have general liability insurance or directors and officers uh, liability insurance if they're in a larger firm. You should be asking all of these questions because the more value you can provide across a spectrum, the better your relationship is going to be with them. And that's the thing I think that's really missing. Because if you if you sat down with your best friend and your best friend was opening a business, you wouldn't say to them, oh, here's what we got to do. We got to get your engagement agreement together because I'm a transactional attorney and I, you know, I handle those things. No, you'd be like, oh, that's great. You know, uh, what are you going to do first? Do you, you need real estate. Oh, yeah, you're going to look for you're going to look for real estate. I, I know somebody who can help you with that. And then when you're ready to close on the real estate transaction, I have somebody who can help you with that. And then you're going to need insurance. I'm going to help you with that because I know somebody who does that. This is what you would do for your friend. And yet all of a sudden there's a client and we, we freeze up and we're like, oh, you know, one dimensional because that's what we do. Now you, you've got something kind of, kind of interesting going on with your business, Nermeen. And, um, you know, in, in scrolling around your website, I saw that there's a, there's, uh, some content there for dental practices as well. Right. So tell me about that. Yeah, there is content there for dental practices. So, I am also a dental practice consultant. So I do both things. I work with doctors and lawyers, and that has been my sweet spot for several years now. And, you know, I leave it sort of minimized on the website intentionally. Now, it, there's a strategy behind this. Uh, dentists are used to people selling to them. And as soon as you say, I'm a dental practice consultant, they close their pockets, they stop listening, and all of a sudden they're in like, what is she gonna charge, what is she gonna charge, what is she gonna charge, instead of just being open to a conversation. So what I've found is the less I talk about it, the more it actually comes to me, interestingly enough. And all of my sort of dental practice clients come from relationships that I've developed with a few key people. Now, you know, Dave, one of the things that you were just talking about right now, you know, if you have a best friend who's opening a business, you know, you're going to introduce them to a real estate person, you're going to introduce them to, you know, a, a CPA, you're going to introduce them to all these people. 
those are really important referral relationships. And you know what happens when you give those people business? They give you business, right? Like, like it's so such a no-brainer that I think sometimes we just forget. So it's not just about servicing our clients fully and making sure that they've got you know, all, all of the resources that they need, but also that once we start connecting our clients with those resources, those resources want to give back to us as a way of saying thank you. And it may not come tomorrow. It may come in a year. It may come in two years, but it's going to come back around. And I feel like if you have that attitude about, you know, wanting to deepen those referral partnerships, those are just going to be worth gold. And honestly, that's why I don't even openly advertise that because I have my partners who send me dentists who know, you know, means going to take care of you. She's going to help you fix your practice. This is what she's going to do. And that's all I, that's all it takes. One introduction from one of those partners, one conversation, and I get the client. I don't have to do a six month sales cycle. I don't have to post on Instagram. I don't have to dance on TikTok. I don't have to do any of that shit. Like they're just, they're just coming because I've built those relationships. And, you know, I think Dave, like that's probably what you tell your clients to do as well is deepen those relationships with your referral sources. Don't, you know, ignore them, you know, make sure that you don't just have to send them business, but also just keep in touch with them. You know, don't, don't just call them up when you need them, you know, stay in touch with them. Yeah, I, I one of the one of the things we teach right in the right in the middle of the beginning of our time together is after you identify your ideal client and then identify evangelists, which is what you're talking about, people who don't pay for your services but send clients to you. After you do those two things, the key is to stay in touch with them in a way that's meaningful and valuable and you know, I teach, uh, you have to refer someone business at least three times, like good business, not garbage. You have to refer them good business at least three times. Then you have my permission to give up on them if nothing comes back from it. But if, but you have to stay in touch with them because, and the other thing we teach them too, is you have to teach other people how to refer you. Right. So we don't um, and, you know, we're going to we're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. But I, before we do, I want to I want to kind of explore this with you, because, you know, we both found each other through a network of professionals. So I want to talk about professional networks and how you maximize your membership in them. And let's start that conversation by talking about teaching people how to refer you because the way Nermeen likes to get a client may not be the same way Dave Lorenzo likes to get a client, right? So like for me, I the way I teach people to refer me is when I have someone who's ready, willing, and able to do business with, like if I had somebody who's ready, willing, and able to do business with you, this is, we're still in the time of COVID. So if you're listening to this five years after COVID ended, I'll, I'll give you the way to do it then. But right now, how I would do it is I would set up a Zoom call before I set up the Zoom call, I would say, I'm gonna introduce you to my friend, Nermeen. She's gonna help you build a wildly successful law firm. I think you're gonna hit it off with her for these reasons. And here's the thing, Nermeen is not inexpensive. So if you have any issue with spending money to advance your future, don't let me make this introduction. And then I would say, here is the price range for Nermeen's services. 
I want you to think about it. If you're open to making, uh, to having a conversation and I'm not pressuring you to say yes, I just want you to go into this with an open mind. If you're open to having a conversation, I'll set up a meeting for the three of us. I'll make sure Nermeen doesn't provide any hard sell, but you'll get to know her. She'll get to know you. And then you guys can decide if you want to have a follow-up conversation or not. That's the way I refer people when I have someone who's ready, willing, and able to do business. Now, an evangelist relationship is different. So if I were introducing you, Nermeen, to like somebody who does dental equipment, let's say, and that was a good fit for you, I would go to that person. I would say, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Nermeen, and here's the way she works. She's going to refer you stuff and you need to pay attention to all of those referrals and treat them like family. You need to do everything you can to bend over backwards and take care of them. And if you do that, I promise you at some point in the next 12 months, you're going to get some business from it. But when she sends you a referral, you're going to have to look for somebody for her. You're going to have to send business back to her. And if you don't think this is going to be a productive relationship, wait and see the quality of referrals that she sends you because I promise you they're going to be good referrals. Do you want me to make that connection? So what I did, I set the table and then I made the introduction and I took away all the objections that could be possible. That's the way I want to get referrals. So that's the way I refer business out. But what do we see all the time? We see all the time the, oh, I'm going to do an email introduction. Oh, I met Dave. He's part of a provisors group and he seems like a really nice guy. You guys might want to have a conversation, right? Or what's the worst? The worst thing a lawyer can do. Here's three names, you know, or, oh, you know what? I told somebody about you. This is the person's name and the name is freaking spelt wrong. And you got one digit off on the phone number. So you got to Google it. Basically, it's an invitation to a cold call, right? So, you know, Nermeen, Tell us, how do you like to get referrals? And then how do you teach your clients to pass referrals? Yeah, so this is such a great, important conversation. And I will say I've been in so many networking groups. And when people are introducing what they do, I'm like, I don't know what that means, right? So number one, when you're going to introduce yourself, when you're going to explain to people what you do, you have to be so specific. You cannot tell people this whole big thing of full of legal jargon. Do you know what I hear attorneys saying all the time? I'm a transactional attorney that works in a boutique law firm. I have 20 years of experience. What? No one gives a shit about that. No one even knows what litigation means. No one knows what transactional means. I was literally in a room with an attorney and a very, very smart commercial real estate person who was like, what does transactional mean? Like, what is, why do you, why do you introduce yourself that way? And it was this whole brilliant conversation that exactly speaks to what I've been complaining about, which is when you introduce yourself, don't be jargony. Also, don't be so broad. I've heard people say, I work with businesses that are from 50, 500,000 to 50 million. Do you know how broad that range is? Like that is so unspecific. What I try to do is I try to be super specific and I try to tell everyone I know, be as specific as you can. So I was talking to um, another consultant the other day and I was like, say that you work with German manufacturers. It is so specific that people are going to think of you for that. Instead of saying, we work on leadership and strategy. And I'm like, that is so broad. No one knows what you're talking about. No one knows what leadership means. Nobody knows what strategy means. So Rule number one, be super, super simple. If you're an attorney, say something simple like, I work with dads who love their kids, 
who are going through a difficult divorce and want to keep the kids happy during the separation process. Wow, I know exactly what you do. I know exactly who to refer you to. That's so great. And it's a little bit emotional, punchy, and it makes people think of you when you see a dad who's going through a divorce. Like, guess who I'm going to think of? You, not the other 50 million family law attorneys that are in the area. So number one, be as specific as possible. Number two, when you're having those introduction calls, a lot of times attorneys get caught up in the time management part of it, which is oh my God, this is going to take so much time. Even if you introduce me to them, it's going to be an hour. And do you know, looking at my calendar, I don't have an hour until, you know, September. All right. (laughs) I get that. But also these introduction calls can be super structured. So I'm going to tell you what I do and you can use this if this is what feels right to you. Get on 15 minute calls. You talk for five minutes. Let them talk for five minutes. Then spend five minutes trying to see if you have chemistry to see if there's anyone that you can both introduced to each other. One way to make that process easier is to get on your computer, keep LinkedIn up or keep your email up so that if they're saying something and you're like, oh, let me introduce you to that person, you can do it immediately because you're on LinkedIn and you can find their information and do it while you're on the call. Don't make these 15 minute get to know you calls, never gonna refer you calls. Make it extremely intentional and Start the conversation by prefacing it that way. I'll talk for five minutes, you talk for five, and then we'll see what what we can do to help each other for five. That way it's only 15 minutes. You can do that on your way to work. You can do that, you know, during lunch. You can find those 15 minutes. They, They don't need to be these, you know, long drawn out conversations that I think oftentimes we think they have to be. It's just a get to know you introduction and it doesn't need to be so long. No, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. Thank you for that. Nermeen, who's a, who's a good referral for you and how do we connect people with you? I mean, we are wildly successful.com. That's a, that's a great website, but who's the right person? So I'm out there looking now for somebody for you, somebody who's listening to this, maybe out there and they might know the exact right person. Who's the right person for Nermeen to help, you know, make a great living and live a great life. Yeah, I will be super specific. It is a female lawyer who's a breadwinner. Like, that's who I work with. And anything that they need, they can come to me for that. So you can reach me via email. I'm sure you will, you know, attach it to here. But if they're listening, Nermeen at wearws.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on on LinkedIn. Like, you're welcome to reach out to me on any of those channels. I don't do any sort of hard pressure sales tactics. I will probably send you free resources and they will probably make your life easier. So, yeah. Great. That's terrific. We're going to put all that in the show notes, of course. The last thing I have for you, Nermeen. So we met through ProVisors. It's a, it's a network of professionals and I am I am grateful. My entire ProVisors membership uh, fee was recouped in the last uh, 54 minutes of this conversation. So this was an incredibly valuable conversation. Thank you. What, what other groups do you belong to? So if other people are, if people want to emulate you, if they want to use you as a role model, ProVisors is great. If you're a professional service provider, what other groups do you belong to? Yeah, so I'll tell you what I did before I started with ProVisors. So one, I was in Exit Planning Exchange. They are a national networking group. If you have anything to do with exit planning, that is another group I would recommend. 
Uh, they've got tons of chapters and you can go to different chapters because everything's still on Zoom. So I highly recommend them as a group. The second one that I did was I joined a local um, club. So I joined the Buckhead Club here in Atlanta. There's, I'm sure every single state has one. Essentially, you can go there, you can meet people, you can grab lunch with members. They have their own internal networking events. If you are new, it is a great place to go and just spend your time there. Go hang out there. Even now, a lot of them are open and they are practicing, you know, COVID protocols. They've got all of that in place. So if you're someone who just needs to be in person, go join a club like that. Spend your days there and get to know the people who frequent the place. Get to know the staff who work there because the staff who work there know everyone else who's a member and they are more than happy to connect their members because that means that they're gonna come and do lunch there and spend money there and come and get drinks there and all of that. So I would highly recommend those two things. The third thing I would say is please use LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a really, really important platform if you are any sort of a professional the kind of resources that are available there. And and the other thing I will say is I talk to a lot of LinkedIn creators who put content out there. The thing to remember is there's not as much content on LinkedIn as there is on Instagram. So if you're going to choose one, choose LinkedIn because it is not as busy and they are looking for content and they are going to show your content to at least 10 to 12% of your following audience. Instagram is only going to show it to three to seven percent. So just by numbers there, LinkedIn wins. And it is really where people are going specifically to find people like it. They're not looking for photos they're not looking for recipes like they're going intentionally in pursuit of something pop up on their radar. Keep posting on LinkedIn at least twice a week and make it engaging and make it interactive. Uh, great advice. I think that's amazing, fantastic advice. And I really appreciate you sharing it with our audience. Nermeen, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. Thanks for spending all this extra time. We really, uh, we really are grateful. Those of you who want to reach out to Nermeen, all you need to do is just put in, we are wildly successful and you can put in her name and you, she's going to come up. I mean, there's there's no other wildly successful successful Nermeens on the internet today. And I got all this stuff for you in the show notes. All you got to do is scroll down into the show notes. Nermeen, thank you. It was an honor to have you here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. Folks, thanks for joining us today. There'll be another show popping up right below me if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening, please go over to YouTube and click on the like button and subscribe. Remember, folks, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is the place to go if you need help with anything related to your accounting. You can find them in Chicago. You can find them in Michigan. They do tax planning. They do business strategy consulting. They do family office advisory. If you're interested in hearing what Sandrowski Corporate Advisors can do for you, you can call me or you can dial this number, 866-717-1607. Also, don't forget the Revenue Roadmap Guide. That's my business plan for you to take your firm to the next level. It's absolutely free. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info. You can download it there. We will be right back here again tomorrow with another fantastic show. So until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.